the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot. I'm your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Scott Fisher, Assistant Professor at the New Jersey City University. His focus is national and international security. Scott has recently received his PhD from Rutgers University. He also has an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown and an MA in Korean and International Studies from Seoul National University in South Korea. His research focus is on information warfare, U.S. national security challenges in East Asia, and open source intelligence. Prior to joining New Jersey City University, Scott has worked as a crisis management analyst for the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon, deployed to Iraq as a DoD civilian, and served tours in Afghanistan and East Africa as an Army Reserve officer. Scott Fisher, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Hey, great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Scott, we wanted to talk today about your work in information operations and the connection to civil affairs. But I want to go back a little bit to when you were studying at the University of Michigan, you studied the history and cultures of Korea, China, and Japan. How did you make that leap from undergraduate studies to the Army, Army Reserve, and an interest connected to civil affairs and information operations? Coming out of undergrad, I was really wanted to travel. Saw an ad in our school newspaper, teach English in Korea, we pay airfare. So, okay. Can't, can't go wrong with that. So, went over to Korea and loved it. Was there off and on for about 15 years. So, really enjoyed that time overseas. Mostly teaching, went to grad school, doing that kind of stuff. Really, really enjoyed it. So then when I came back to the States, about 10 years ago at this point, I wanted to continue working kind of related to that field. And frankly, it sounds a little weird, but every time I had come home before that, I'd been home for a few months, frankly, got a little bored, and then gone back overseas. So I thought, all right, well, if I join the Army, I'll at least be forced to stay home in the States for some point, period of time. And if I go overseas, then it'll be with, you know, with the government. That might be a little more stable than randomly wandering around by myself. Over the years, finally went in, signed up. So you went directly into the Army Reserve, is that right? Yeah, went straight into the Reserve. I was uh, living in D.C. at the time, going to uh, Georgetown. Okay. And what was your branch in the Army? My original branch, I needed an age waiver. And so I could only choose from a signal, quartermaster, and one or two others. So I chose quartermaster, came in on that. And so that was my original branch. Right. Okay. And so you're with the CA unit, not qualified, I guess, as a CA officer at Correct. the time. Is that right? Okay. Correct. Yeah, I came in as a second lieutenant, one of those guys you see at drill who is, you know, in civilian clothes, hasn't gone to basic training yet. So did that for a couple months and then, you know, went away basic, OCS, back for a while, went away to Bullock. But by the time all that was up, around the time I was making first lieutenant, got married. My wife is from the New York City area. Needed to move up here. Yeah, it makes total sense. And then you switched over to information operations. Why do that switch from uh, the logistics area to I.O.? When I joined, I figured I was just was going to be a civil affairs officer due to my background. But when I moved up here, there wasn't really a local civil affairs unit. And I heard some interesting, some good, positive things about I.O. So I thought, well, let me go check these guys out. Started to, uh, you know, met them, started drilling with totally and completely uh, fell in love with it. It's actually similar to the research I do on the civilian side. Yeah, so jumped in with both feet. That's great to hear. And we want to get to the connection between I.O. and civil affairs, but I want to first ask you about some of those deployments. You went to East Africa, and you also gone to Afghanistan for I.O. missions. What were some of those big lessons that you learned? So Afghanistan was the first one, and I was an I.O. chief for a SOCOM group in kind of central Afghanistan. That was interesting because we had 
the authorities, we had robust set of capabilities. We could really do a lot. The JAG would sign off on most things. And so if there was something we wanted to do, we could generally do it essentially in-house. Occasionally you would work with a partner force or something, but we could kind of do things in-house. Fast forward to East Africa last year, it's a completely different mission set. It's advise and assist, subject matter, expert exchanges. Completely different in that we directly couldn't do anything. It was working through by with our partner forces. That was a big transition there. So Afghanistan, I really got to put a lot of the training, a lot of the capabilities to use, whereas Africa had to kind of figure out how to work with, train, educate um, a partner force in, in IO and then in related capabilities. So different challenges, both of them interesting. Afghanistan, in a way, was uh, more interesting because you actually felt like you could do the job yourself instead of having to you know, work with a whole bunch of other folks. So do you feel like you have a better grasp on what IO is and how to accomplish that mission? Definitely. After the first deployment, I had a, a pretty fair understanding of what we could do. And that was, I had very clear guidance. I had a commander, the second one who came in, they switched out partway through the deployment. The new commander came in and said, listen, your job, IO guy, is to... I'll keep it PG rated. Uh, mess with the minds of the terrorists so they make mistakes so I can capture and kill them. Right. So that was very clear guidance of how I could order it. So to the extent that I could help him capture and kill the people he was targeting, great. But he was also interesting. And once we had some credibility on the, the non-kinetic side, he said, hey, I'm not going and operating in this area or I'm not focused on this group of folks. So if you just want to approach them non-kinetically, as long as you don't mess up what we're doing with the main effort, you'll have at it. You run it through me, but you know, all the, the gloves are off. Do what you need to do. That really allowed me to dive in deep and use these capabilities that prior to that you only had read about. Based on those experiences, Scott, how do you think, how have you seen or experienced information operations being connected to civil affairs? So, for example, in Afghanistan, and I've been lucky, I've worked with some, some great CA folks all the way through. In Afghanistan, there was a, we needed to message in a particular area. The folks there had no way of receiving radio broadcasts. And the government wanted to, prior to the elections in 2014, wanted to establish a stronger footprint there, including in the information environment. So, worked with the Afghan government, some partner forces uh, on the Afghan side, and then the civil affairs folks, and the CA folks really took the lead in getting some radios and getting them distributed into the valleys, essentially, the area that we were trying to get, or frankly, the Afghans were trying to get additional coverage in. And so that was my first opportunity to really work with CA, and it could not have happened without that. You know, we can message all we want, but if no one has a radio, it's not going to do anybody any good. That was the first time I worked with CA and had a de demonstrable benefit. You could see surveys or information that we had gathered prior to that radio distro compared to similar surveys conducted after that radio distro and see a marked change in how the locals were viewing the government. That's the goal. That's not just distributing them, it's, it's seeing something tangible on the other side. Were there people from psychological operations in that mix as well? Yeah. For us on a deployment, it's CA, PSYOP, and IO. You're meeting essentially every day, having lunch together, hanging out together. So everything we do is at the IO schoolhouse, they teach that you don't control anything. You're a networker. You're only as good as how well you can work with others. Everything we do is by sitting down and working with primarily CA and PSYOP, some then with cyber or EW or public affairs, etc. But it's really based on your success or lack thereof is based on how well you can get along with CA and PSYOP counterparts.
counterparts. Okay. Do you call that a non-kinetic cell? Is there a name for the group that comes together? A lot together? of the times, yeah. Sometimes it'll be an IO working group, a non-kinetic cell, the IO guys meeting. I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, generally it's the, the non-kinetic cell comes together. And then Intel is always involved in that as well. The front end, figure out how, what our avenues of approach are to a particular target and what does he or she read, uh, you know, what radio stations do they listen to, you know, that kind of stuff, where they're located, but then also assessing the effects after. Does IO operate on the same structure as civil affairs and PSYOPs in the, the teams or and also supporting two echelons above? Similar. Normally we deploy as teams. Normally we deploy in support of SOCOM elements as our unit. Active duty IO a lot of times works in a divisional headquarters or something like that. But on the uh, for our unit, it's normally in support of SOCOM and we'll deploy in small teams. And it could be a two-person team, four-person team, six-person. just kind of depends on the, the nature of the RFF. Do you find that there are a bunch of previous PSYOP and CA folks who go over to IO operations and, and units? You'd see a lot of mix. You'll see, and you'll, frankly, you'll see a lot of double qualified people in that. Because IO is, we're not a branch. We're a, a functional area. You can be CA branch or PSYOP branch or you know, quartermaster branch, but then go and pick up those functional areas, including um, IO. And so every IO officer came in as something else. And then you'll meet a lot of people who maybe you know, came in as a quartermaster, infantry, engineer, whatever it may be, maybe did CA or PSYOP after they did that, and then added IO uh, somewhere along the way. Sure. So you have commission officers. Do you have uh, senior NCOs and warrant officers as well? We'll have uh, most of the training that we have is officer-specific or for various, for EAT-9s and then for warrants. So usually when you deploy, IO is pretty much a planning effort so it's mostly officers with a few senior NCOs and occasionally warrants though for whatever reason our use our unit is usually pretty light on warrant officers they have a hard time um, getting them in and it's not a clear career path the amount of time I spend in IO I'm looking to make general I'm not going to do that if I spend a lot of time doing IO I've got to go back at some point to my main branch to uh, you know to be competitive when it comes to promotion yeah I understand that's um very similar to the way that the Marine Corps handles civil affairs. It's a secondary yeah, exactly. job for them as well. Exactly. For us, as a reservist, it can be not a lot of us are maybe trying to make general or even make full bird. So you know, people who do IO for a long time generally do it because they're attracted to it and want to stick with that specific field or maybe a subset within that field. If you're trying to make promotions and stuff, it's not a good place to come, frankly. Right. Well, it sounds like it may be a perfect uh, functional area in the Army for the, the new National Defense Authorization Act had approved DOD to, I think it's down to the service level, if needed, they can direct commission some people and bring them in up to an 06 level, I believe, if they have some specialties and also allow uh, in the officer ranks people to sit in a, in a rank for a longer period of time and become more specialized. Yeah, see, for us, that would be perfect because a lot of our officers, the ones, especially the ones who deploy a lot, who are really into IO itself, they would like that because, yeah, they're focused on, do, do, quote, doing IO, not so much on... You know, becoming the IO colonel. There just aren't that many. Right. But yeah, that would be perfect. And then if we're getting people in off the street, you know, like everything else, we're affected by increased demands of technology, the cyber arena, etc. So being able to bring in folks with the cyber background and training is would be a huge plus for us. Scott, you talked about the training programs. What are the military training programs for information operations? So if you want to be the FA-30, then you need to go to the FA-30 school and 
I was interesting. You can go to the full-time school out at Fort Leavenworth, the active duty school. Uh, they take reservists and guards, uh, people from the guard as well. Or the Vermont National Guard also has training for FA-30. And that one's a little different. It's six, seven months of online training with a culminating exercise for a couple weeks at the end of the training. And they also take active duty in addition to guard and reservist. So there's two ways to get your, your FA. That said, a lot of people on the IO side don't get or delay getting their, uh, their FA-30 because you can do other training. You can go down to the Joint Forces Staff College. They have a GIOPSI course, Joint Information Operations Planners course. Fantastic. Best training I've ever had in, in government, let alone in, in the Army. And month-long course teaches you everything you need to know about IO planning. And then coming out of that course, I felt, and most of the people I went there with, felt they were capable of stepping into an, an IO role, or whatever it may be, in a SOCOM element, bigger unit, etc. And there you'll run in, you'll co-train with a lot of your Air Force, Navy, Marines, you know, a lot of the uh, joint forces. Scott, I wanted to ask you about parts of the U.S. military uh, that you believe are effective in IO campaigns. Is it IO elements supporting, like your, your element supporting SOCOM? Are other parts of the Army conducting IO? Deep. And that's a hard, this is a hard question to, uh, to answer. IO, a lot of times, we're, we're in a supporting role. We're not in the driver's role. And so at the schoolhouse, they kind of joke around that you know, you'll be on a deployment. The commander will go over, okay, here's the mission. We're going to do this. And, oh, yeah, sprinkle some IO on. And so not really uh, a focus. Occasionally, you can get with a commander based on, frankly, oftentimes personal relationships, credibility, nature of the problem set and be able to run kind of an information-driven, information-focused, non-kinetic-focused mission or set of missions. But it's rare that you're able to do that. So, and this may irritate some people, but it seems like it's, IO occasionally has success, but it's, it's not something that's replicated often. The next mission, you may, just certain elements of that mission, you may not be able to do something that achieves a success, or you may rotate home, and it'll be six months before you find out, you know, did we have uh, any success on that? And then how do you measure success? If you're trying to measure public opinion, for example, you have all the data in the world, like the, the U.S. election in 2016. Plenty of data there. Plenty of people made the wrong call and who they thought were going to win that election. So it can be really hard to put the plan together, to get buy-in, to operationalize your plan, figure out how you're going to assess it, and then actually be able to assess it accurately. I always tough. You really got to get down into the weeds sometimes to make something successful. And then one tactical success or a few strung together, once that person rotates out, whether the commander or whoever, it can be hard to You have a lot of background in Korea, and I wonder if you've studied the IO operations of North Korea, of Russia, of China, some countries that can be considered adversaries of ours, politically, uh, militarily. And I've heard over the last several years, especially since the 2016 presidential election um, and elections in Estonia and other countries where people have argued that Russia has been uh, meddling, that um, Russia show is very effective with their IO campaigns. You think that's true? Yeah, 100%. And they're effective. The example I like to give to this is, you know, why are the Russians effective? Counterpoint, flip side of that coin, why is the U.S. ineffective? It's, it's a weird metaphor, but I think it accurately summarizes it, is uh, the Iranian female Olympic swim team. You have these Iranian women, they want to join the Olympic team, decent swimmers, but for cultural, religious reasons, were forced to wear much heavier, thicker, much more covering swimsuits. So their performance 
was not as fast as some of the other folks. Does it mean they were a bad swimmer? No. It means they had certain requirements that they had to meet that prevented them from achieving everything they could achieve. I.O. in the U.S. is somewhat similar in that there's a lot of restrictions, there's a lot of concern and justifiable about the government, whatever component that may be, messaging in a way that influences the American public. Back before the internet, wasn't so bad. If you were broadcasting radio for Europe into the Soviet Union, you didn't have to worry about influencing much of the U.S. public. But now if you're messaging on the internet, U.S. citizens could see that, especially citizens maybe of a, of a group that speaks a language that you're targeting for a terrorist group or whatever organization. So then those concerns always raise red flags, and that prevents, especially at some of the higher levels, higher operational or the strategic level, of being able to do messaging because people are so concerned about it affecting U.S. citizens. Russia doesn't have to worry about that. North Korea is not concerned about that, Chinese, Iranians, etc. And so they're allowed to kind of take the gloves off a little bit more, kind of like we could back in Afghanistan, to bring the full capabilities to bear that we're, we have a hard time responding to due to our legal, cultural, etc. cetera, uh, way of looking at things. I don't want to use the word constraints. It's just the, the nature of our system. Yeah, that makes sense. And the Russians are excellent. The Russians are, they're good at it. They're patient. They spend their time figuring out the information environment, the cultural environment, the linguists. Uh, they have graphic designers who make memes that will appeal to people. And they're constantly measuring it. And if it works, continue. If it doesn't work, they cut it, substitute something else until they find something that does work. And you can literally see there's a Hamilton 68 is a good example of a website uh, in the U.S. that monitors Russian information or influence efforts uh, in the U.S., mainly Twitter. What are, their, what are their accounts putting out on Twitter? How many times are they using a certain hashtag, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see in essentially real time what they're doing to try to affect the U.S. public. Are they trying to get a certain person elected? Maybe, maybe not. But are they trying to encourage partisanship? Are they trying to en- encourage divides? Are they trying to... Yeah, so discord among the American public? Yeah, exactly. Well, so you can see that, and they're good at it. And that was my dissertation, was essentially looking at Russia and North Korea in terms of information as a tool of foreign policy. Oh, wow. Is that public information? Did you publish anything from uh, your thesis? Yeah, it's uh, it just finished in April and hopefully all the journal submissions are in so hopefully have some start some stuff to start coming out this fall or spring. Oh good. Okay, we'll look out for it. Frankly it's similar to it's non kinetic. I just use the dime approach that anybody you know, military is familiar with diplomacy, information, military and economic dime approach to foreign policy which works and which doesn't. The idea is is that an authoritarian state like Russia or North Korea it's very concerned about controlling its domestic information environment. It's going to respond negatively every time that control is challenged. So it's interesting. In the case of Russia, you have NATO conducting a military exercise in the Balkans, or sorry, in uh, the Baltic states, in Poland. How does Russia react to that? What does their Ministry of Foreign Affairs say? And then you have Freedom House. It's an NGO that focuses on press freedom, internet freedom, that kind of stuff. And they'll release an annual report on countries that are most free, least free, somewhat free in terms of information access. And the Russian government, using the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, reporting, for example, actually responds much more negatively to the release of that Freedom House than it does to that NATO military exercise in Estonia, Lithuania, or Latvia. The argument of the dissertation is why are we underutilizing this tool, which is of obvious concern to states that are actively targeting us in the information environment. Interesting. What kind of response did you get, Scott, from colleagues in academia? It was intriguing. 
And now it's just a matter of sitting down and you know, getting the journal submissions in and getting it to come out in journals and then you know, kind of beating the drum for this. There's a NATO conference in September that I'm going to go do a workshop at and present this information. So hopefully we can start getting the ear of some people to say, hey, this, these countries respond. It's not in Connecticut. You don't have to worry about hurting anybody. You don't have to worry about influencing American citizens. All you're simply trying to do is allow greater information access to these targeted states. Right. It kind of gets us around our own kind of self-imposed controls on not messaging the American people. And this is where, frankly, I'd like to be able to work with the CA folks, because I don't know anything about Russia, but you guys have that cultural, linguistic training. You have the capabilities, in some ways better than the intel folks, of measuring human training, measuring that type of information environment that is extremely useful from an I.O. perspective. I see that as well. You're, you're right. We do care about the human domain. We care about areas and structures, and yep. but there's always a human component to everything. Do you see that, th- is there any joint training that's going on between civil affairs and I.O. teams? We occasionally do, and it's, I.O. is now part, and I'm not sure for how much longer, part of use of K-POC. So because we're part of use of K-POC, you do see a lot more of that cross-training, um, you know, going to the same schoolhouses, working together. Partly it's because of people you've met along the way, and now that everybody's getting a little bit higher in rank, they reach out, hey, let's have your guys come drill with, with my folks, etc. Then also more formalized at the higher levels to say we people are deploying together, we need to get them to work together. And that's key. That's, that's really helpful because you don't know what you don't know. And how how can I.O. work with CA? How can CA work with I.O.? And there's so much overlap, and there's so much useful stuff, whether that's an understanding of the human terrain or whatever, that, that CA has that IO could benefit from or PSYOP could benefit from, and then vice versa. Like we have ways of measuring the effectiveness of something that is unique to IO that could help help everybody say, hey, here's what we did, here's when we did it, how we did it, the order in which we did it, here's how we surveyed it, here's how we assessed it, and here's demonstrable success. We distributed some radios and we distributed, we had a bunch of meetings about encouraging defectors from a terrorist organization in a certain place at a certain time. A month later, after all of this had been enacted and operationalized, there was a sudden spike in defection. And among those defectors from this terrorist organization, X percentage of them said they defected because of this radio message, a meeting that had taken place with some clan elder who then was able to spread the message to his clan that defection is welcome. All that stuff is how we can help as the, the measuring that effectiveness. That's an IO task. That's We're trained on that. Then that can help the CA person, the PSYOP person, etc., demonstrate to our chain or whatever we're with at the time, but then also to their home chain and come, hey, here's what we did. It was demonstrably effective because here's the data that shows it what. It seems like a no-brainer to me. Scott, you've really provided a valuable overview of information operations on this episode of 1CA. Where else can civil affairs personnel go to learn more about information operations and consider the ways that IO can or CA units can better integrate with IO units? The, and I'm, I'm going to say this half facetiously. Um, read the news to see what Russia, because what they're doing to influence Europe and the U.S. is textbook information warfare. We call it information operations, but people at large call it information warfare. So just simply reading the news, following what Russians do it, is an excellent way of seeing, in some ways, best practices, half facetious. On the other side, to learn 
what's going on. The IO courses are all open because we're a functional area. Anyone can take them. And a fair number of them are online or they're short, one week, two weeks long. Most of the time I go to an IO course down in DC, for example, at first IO command, there's at least a handful of people there from SIOP and the CA side of the house. So working together there, but then there's all kinds of information online as organizations, journalists, etc., read and learn more about what Russia is doing. There are more books that are coming out on it. A former CIA person just put out a book called uh, Deception. So it's Robert Clark. This book is on the subset of information operations, which is purely deception. Very interesting book. There literally is a textbook. There's exercises in the back on how to do this, how to use <laughs> Intel, etc. So fantastic book that I'm literally reading right now because I'm getting ready for drill this weekend and taking some of them. One of the things I do at drill is teach this stuff and pulling some stuff out of there to use in my lesson. Over there. And there's another book. It's called Messing with the Enemy. It's by a gentleman by the name of Clint Watts. Excellent book. He's the one that helps with the Hamilton 68 website. It does the kind of real-time monitoring of Russia's influence efforts in the U.S. And his really goes in and takes a look, broader picture of the, the kind of the non-kinetic side. And finally, there's one war in 140 characters. Another American wrote that. But again, it's more about kind of the non-kinetic fight. And so all of these books, these resources, the, the website, really helpful in kind of how I.O. could be done, should be done. Well, Scott Fisher of the New Jersey City University Assistant Professor, recently recipient of his PhD. Congratulations to you. Uh, and thank you. Thank you very much for being here on the 1CA podcast. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for having me. Hello again, friends. John McElligot here. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. A-S-S-O-C dot O-R-G. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support.